All right, everybody. Uh, welcome to our live broadcast and discussion today on X and also on YouTube. I want to welcome our audience and I'm really excited about uh, today's discussion. Uh, my name is David Lees and I'm your proud host of Leaders on the Frontier. So we're glad that you could join us. Today, I'm going to welcome um, a special guest uh, back again, uh, Barbara Kay, columnist and author, uh, great analyst. And uh, so a warm welcome to you, Barbara. Thanks for having me, David. It's great to be here. Well, Barbara, it's uh, great to have you because I'm, I'm sure that we're going to get uh, a number of questions from our audience. Uh, we just released this week a, a discussion that we had on Leaders on the Frontier. And if you haven't seen it uh, as an audience, I encourage you to, to review it. We'd welcome your comments and your feedback uh, as we welcome your chat. And be sure to like us and, and subscribe uh, to our newsletters. Uh, we certainly uh, really appreciate uh, really the the, the the hundreds of comments we receive on programs. And it's really amazing uh, uh, the kind of um, enthusiasm we've received um, to the program. In fact, um, just the other week, uh, we broke the uh, the 50 barrier with the Apple co podcast in terms of popularity in the news category in Canada. So uh, we're pleased and that's all because of our audience. And, and so be sure to keep sharing and liking uh, what we're doing. We really do appreciate it. So Barbara, we had, I think, an extraordinary conversation. We covered an awful lot. Our theme was kind of picking up on revelations coming out of October 7, the horrendous uh, terrorism attack by Hamas um, on Israel and uh, the, the death and, and destruction out of that. It's really been quite a story as it's unfolded. Um, and it's hard to believe that uh, that was in October 7. So that effort continues, and we basically kind of got into a variety of topics, whether it was from uh, wokeism to universities. Um, so I, I found it a very interesting discussion. So I did want to pick up on some of those threads, because we talked a lot about, um, if I had to characterize it, truth-telling around different topics. And so out of October 7, out of that horrendous tragedy, um, it is a very interesting time uh, as we talk about this on February the 15th, the day after Valentine's Day. Um, we talk about what's happening now uh, in, in Gaza and the continued war by Israeli defense forces um, on Hamas. I think we're kind of in a critical countdown as mm -hmm. we look at um, how they have done an incredible job at rooting out Hamas, literally out of the uh, hundreds of miles of tunnels underneath Gaza that has been built. Um, and so through that whole system, where are we at now from your point of view, Barbara, when it comes to looking at this tragedy and, and, and the historic moment that we're at now today is, as Israel looks at uh, kind of completing the destruction of Hamas? Well, the the uh, situation is that, yes, uh, Israel is still very much committed to uh, having a total victory. Uh, needless to say, there's been quite a bit of pushback to that. Uh, there's been less pushback than you might than might have been expected because the the uh, civilian uh, casualty rate is going down uh, because the campaign is now highly targeted and uh, very precise. So you're not having massive bombing raids or, or anything like that. Um, and uh, they are very committed to that, but you're still having people in the West demanding a ceasefire kind of as an automatic thing. Um, this has gone on long enough or the, you know, there's, uh, there's too many people dying. It's, these, these comments are not helpful. Because mm -hmm. they, they, what they're really saying is don't destroy Hamas entirely. They, they're actually mm -hmm. uh, saying we'd be more comfortable if you'd stop. Uh, but they have to understand that if Israel stops now, when they have their ultimate goal in view, this is going to be end up, uh, you know, playing the same game again. Um, letting them get back to a certain strength. And then their their goal is the same as ever, to eradicate Israel. They're not going to stop. So the yeah. uh, situation is, is, I would say, 
um, very much Israel's to control, and and their aim is to, and they are proceeding very well. So they've 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 eliminated about half of the terrorists either by killing them or or uh, they have a huge number in custody from those uh, from those that they have taken as prisoners. Uh, they are obviously receiving a great deal of intelligence, uh, which has allowed them to um, home in on certain buildings or certain tunnels. Uh, and one of the great uh, one of the great finds was to discover the command center of Hamas. Uh, it, I suppose they got that from you know uh, information that they they got from a prisoner. So that that has actually I think quieted down a lot of. Uh, criticism because people see it. They see now uh, what they've got and it's not pretty. Right. Okay. So to be clear from your perspective, uh, Barbara, the critical mission that Israel uh, really began with day one, uh, the day after October 7, e.g. on October 8, is their number one mission is to eradicate Hamas, to take them out, period. And that mission has not changed, and they're now in the final stage of doing that. So this is a really important time. So why would our foreign minister call for a ceasefire at this time? This is where the mission needs to be completed. Otherwise, the risk to Israel is really unacceptable. Is it not that this terrorism attack would just happen again? I agree with you that it is critical to Israel, but I'd also probably agree with you that for our foreign affairs minister, what Israel needs for its own security is not uppermost in her mind. Uh, I, I think this is almost a rote kind of thing. We need a ceasefire. Peace is better than war. It's it's that superficial. Um, and, uh, you know, we shouldn't forget that on October 6th, the day before uh, the pogrom, a ceasefire was in uh, there was a ceasefire actually supposedly uh, in place, uh, which had been abrogated anyways. They, I mean, Hamas has abrogated every single ceasefire that has ever been called. So it's almost meaningless to call for a ceasefire when you're dealing with people who have no respect for international law or or rules or uh, anything like that. I, I, I think that uh, the good that will be done by uh, eliminating... value. Okay, so we, sorry, could you repeat that last point, Barbara? I think that that eradicating Hamas, uh, the value in doing so uh, very much transcends any value that there could be in a ceasefire. The only value would be in the optics of, oh, good, uh, you know, there's nobody's dying. So uh, that's not good enough. Um, if, if Hamas really is eliminated, then we can look at the day after, then we can look at rebuilding, we can look at all kinds of other options. But for me, the value is not only in um, elimination of, a, of an existential threat on, on a fragile border, uh, but also in the message that it sends to uh, other Iran proxies like Hezbollah, the Houthis, or whoever else is thinking, now it's our turn to attack. I think it's very important that they see uh, the determination um, and uh, they've poked the bear too many times. And this time the bear, you know, is making sure uh, the nests of hornets are cleared out. Well, it certainly has been a very uh, difficult um, conflict uh, war for everybody, but it's it's part of the, the reality of war. Um, and the reality of how do you deal with terrorism today? Like how do you um, how do you hold a ceasefire with terrorists who have a religious uh, mindset, a war to eliminate and commit genocide on not just Israel but but Jewish people? It is really quite uh, a difficult reality to put one's head around, isn't it? It is. We thought we knew what you do with terrorists when it was Islamic State. Uh, we certainly did not have people protesting in the streets when uh, Americans went in to eliminate uh, Islamic State. Uh, 
um, the Battle of Mosul, uh, which took four months in Iraq, uh, and many more uh, disproportionate, I mean, the proportions of civilians killed to terrorists was much higher than in Gaza, um, and they didn't even have underground tunnels. Uh, so nobody pr protested then because they understood that it really was, Islamic State was a terrorist uh, group. Somehow, somehow, because Hamas is embedded uh, in an actual territory, I mean, where they are the nominal leaders of that territory, uh, this is now a fungible kind of term. And you get our media, the CBC doesn't call them terrorists. Uh, they call them militants. I don't know that. But we've lost that moral clarity around the fact that they are terrorists first um, and political leaders second, if at all, because they've, they have really not exercised any of the uh, practices or uh, responsible action that one associates with political leadership in an actual uh, in a place that says that it's ready to become a state, you know, it's not exactly practicing for statehood. Exactly. I do have a question from the audience and, and speaking the audience, I'm talking with renowned uh, columnist and author, Barbara Kay. So we welcome your questions. And one of the questions is why is the United Nations involved with Hamas? That's okay. That's that's a very good question. Um, after the uh, the the Palestinians are unique in the world uh, for having uh, once they uh, became refugees after the a war that was started by the Arabs against Israel on the day that it declared declared statehood, uh, five Arab armies descended on the fledgling state uh, to everyone's shock and surprise. Uh, Israel did win that war. But in the meantime, during that war, uh, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians had left thinking that they were going to come back when the Arabs won the war. They Okay, so now they are refugees. And there were approximately, uh, I don't know, I think there were 800,000. Um, they were refugees the same as in other parts of the world, uh, numberless states. Uh, there have been wars where certain ethnic groups have fled from strife. And they are all handled by one uh, group in the United Nations called the United Nations uh, Refugee Agency. But for the Palestinians, they created a brand new uh, agency called UNRWA, United Nations uh, Relief Works. Uh, is it, what is it? United, United Nations uh, Relief Works uh, Agency. And uniquely amongst all the refugees in the world, uh, the Palestinians were, were, all other refugees are considered refugees for one generation. After that, their status has to change. They have to be, find themselves a position in other countries. They have to settle down. They have to, they, they are no longer considered refugees by the United Nations. Uniquely, Palestinians are considered refugees into the second, third, fourth, and sometimes I think now some are in the fifth generation, and they are looked after by this group, UNRWA. Um, most of the people that work for UNRWA are Palestinians. Um, they are teachers, uh, they're involved in health, social, they're, they're engaged in all kinds of activities uh, that are supposed to help the refugees. There's no reason at all why they're actually still needed because after all these generations, they should be doing their own teaching. They should be doing their own social work. They should be doing, they should be preparing for statehood. Um, but they instead they have remained passive and dependent on, on an agency that is funded by so many billions of dollars. And amongst all those UNWA groups are people that are loyal to Hamas, who know all about the tunnels, who know all about the arms stocking. Um, and they are they are collaborative and complicit, and some of them are out and out fighters for Hamas when when necessary. It's an extremely corrupt organization. They are complicit in teaching young children uh, to want to become suicide bombers, to want to kill Jews. They, they we have this all on tapes that groups like uh, Palestinian Media Watch and and Memory uh, and Camera. Um, so we, we've seen outtakes 
from the lessons they learn in school. Uh, and and yet, uh, we keep funding them. Canada has funded them all. I mean, United States given, I don't know, $290 million a year, crazy amounts of money. Most of it has gone to political leaders of Hamas who live in Qatar and are all built. There's four of them. Every one of them is at least three, is worth $3 billion, $4 billion, $5 billion. All that money has been siphoned off from aid that has supposedly gone to help the Palestinian people. A lot of the money has gone into the tunnel making. There are billions and billions and billions of dollars that have gone into 400 kilometers of tunnels, which is longer than the London Underground. That's more mileage or kilometerage than is in the London subway system. And to think about that is kind of mind boggling. Uh, and all of that underground is for use by Hamas members alone, uh, not for civilians, not for use as bomb shelters. They get no benefit. Um, so that's a long story short. And UNRWA, uh, that's one of the objectives, I think, of Israel, and it should be for all of us. Uh, this, this group has to end. This, there's no need for it. They can be helped by the World Health Organization, by the all the things, all the humanitarian work that is needed in Gaza can be accomplished by groups, UN agencies that are already doing exactly the same thing elsewhere. Why can't they do it in Gaza too? Uh, so that's that's a question that hangs over this this whole situation and has to be dealt with after the war is over. No, I, I think that's a brilliant summation, Barbara. It is stunning what you've summarized in terms of the malfeasance, the corruption. It's like a rat's nest of how the UN, this particular agency has been, really its mission has been compromised and really not serving anybody except itself and Hamas leadership and the cause of terrorism. And ironically, not really serving the the people of Gaza. And so, you know, it begs a lot of serious questions around where to go from here, as you said, uh, with that agency and, and also our own government. Like, under this um, recent administration, we've been actually funding that organization again, because I think that yeah. uh, the previous administration ended its funding because it, it recognized uh, the corruption involved and how it was not on mission anymore. And uh, so why did we decide to, to fund it again? I don't understand this, uh, Barbara. What's your take because on they, that? Because they're working on the assumption, I mean, the assumption that they've been given by Hamas and by the UN is, oh, no, if if we, uh, UNRWA is, 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 they know the system. They're the only ones that can produce the kind of uh, aid that is necessary. Uh, it may be true that right now in the middle of the war, you can't actually kick them all out. and But you can start the process of, of, of de-legitimizing uh, them. And, I, and I, I should have added the most important thing that's wrong with UNRWA is that by, um, by counting as refugees, people in the second, third, fourth generation, UNRWA has is endorsing the idea that they are going back. They have this fantasy that not only are the original refugees, I think there's about 30,000 of them left, um, not only are they going back, but the now 5.6 million people, Palestinians, that are now constitute, you know, in the West Bank and, and the 2 million in Gaza, they're going back too. This is uh, the greatest delusion in history. They are not going back, but by but by nourishing that delusion, which UNRWA does, they are encouraging what they call acts of resistance instead of in keeping people's minds focused on, look, you're not going back. We have to build a society here that convinces the world that we can operate as a viable state. That's when, when, when other countries, before they were states, when other countries have, have applied for statehood, one of their main talking points is, look at what we've accomplished without a state. 
we have a functioning education system, we have a functioning bureaucracy, we have a functioning this, functioning that, and we are ready to take the reins to, to uh, you know, uh, go our own way independently. We won't need your help. This, these, these entities, the Palestinian Authority and Gaza, are mired in dysfunction because their sole raison d'etre is is waiting. They're waiting with their fake keys, like they, they make these big keys to their old homes. Um, they pass them down through the generations for when they're when they're going back. So they're all dreaming, they're all fantasizing. And meanwhile, instead of building a society, they're encouraging their children to become warriors and suicide bombers. And you've I've I've personally seen many videos of mothers talking to interviewers. One I just saw yesterday, she's saying to the interview, why do we have so many children? Because we need them to become suicide bombers. Literally, she said that. And to give their lives as martyrs for, uh, this is what Allah wants from us. I don't know how you can talk about a two-state solution if your neighbors, if this is the mindset of the people who are living 10 miles away from you. Well, this is a, a very humbling kind of situation. Its complexity is astounding in its history. But I think that you rightly turn to, like, beyond mission one, which is to um, uh, take out Hamas and its corrupt leadership. The second question is, yes, as you say, what is, what, what is there to be done in terms of establishing a self-governing state? that would be viable. So there is a question from the audience. And uh, the question has to do with, do you think, um, uh, pardon me, I'm just getting the question here. Can a newly established state in Gaza collaborate with our federal government to develop and implement its own currency and thereby ensuring a future social cohesion within its own borders. I guess the question is really, do you have any hope that a, a future state can arise and that we Canada could even play a role in doing that? You know, if, you, if, if that individual was asking me this question about, say, the Kurds, who I think actually do deserve their own state, um, I would say, yes, I think it could happen because they're already running a very, you know, well-functioning society. But about this place, no, I, I don't, I have no hope. I think it would take generational change in their understanding of who they are as a people. Uh, when, this is not going to happen anytime soon. It's impossible because uh, when we talk about leadership, a different leadership from Hamas, I think perhaps the questioner has in mind a democratic kind of setup where people would vote for uh, a new leadership. But the polls tell us that if if an election were held tomorrow, something like 80% of Gazans and, uh, or 60% of 70% of Gazans and more in the Palestinian Authority would vote for Hamas. In other words, in spite of all the horrors and in spite of what Hamas has brought upon them, they, they are incapable still of, of uh, saying to themselves, we need a complete change. I can tell you, Israel would never accept to anymore uh, to negotiate any kind of uh, a pathway to a two-state solution unless two things happen. One is that the Palestinians must recognize the legitimacy of the state of Israel and its right to be a state, uh, which it is, I mean, it is a state, but to recognize that it is not going away and it is there legitimately. Um, and the second thing is they have to change their educational system. If you saw the texts and what these children are indoctrinated in, you're, you, they are raising a gener generations, they've already raised generations and they are continuing to raise children who have been inculcated with the belief that uh, 
it is unacceptable for Jews to live as equals beside Muslims and that their their uh, ultimate goal is a theocracy, uh, a caliphate in which all Jews will be eliminated from all Muslim lands. That is in their charter. And that charter has to be, well, I mean, it, it, it won't exist after Hamas doesn't exist, if, if that's possible. Um, but but a new charter of whoever is going to be the leader, whoever is going to be, uh, that admission alone will tell us that uh, there's been a uh, a mind shift, you know, a tremendous, uh, tremendous paradigm shift in the way people are thinking. But somebody has to lead that movement away from what's happening now. Who is that person? Who is that group? I don't know, because right now, anybody that suggested that, their life would be at risk. No, I think that's a, a very good point, including your your two conditions. Um, I would add probably a third one, which would be, is there the international leadership to ensure that we're dealing with the elephant in the room, namely that we don't uh, continue to prop up Iran, the really the key actor within that region mm -hmm. who's funding Hamas and this kind of terrorism activity among many others. And I, as long as you have the Biden administration in which is literally giving cash to Iran, and enabling, um, you know, its economic success, uh, I think that's going to be a, a set of conditions that probably will not happen in the near future. But I maybe I'm being too, too, um, too pessimistic. Uh, let's hope that I'm not. Well, the U.S. is certainly key to uh, in all of this, and Biden is. It's an election year, so both players. Um, have to uh, have to make a political calculation about where support is going to be greatest. Uh, for Joe Biden, his own party is very torn on this subject, uh, where he could count on uh, huge support. Uh, I mean, America in general, I would say uh, something like 90% of Americans support Israel and have always supported Israel. But if you look at, uh, if you make, if you take a generational breakdown, you find that the younger people get, the less true that is today. And in the Democratic Party, uh, in the category of 18 to 24-year-olds, you see a massive shift to support for uh, the Palestinian cause in general. Um, and, uh, you know, they're voters too. I, 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 he's, he's really between a rock and a hard place. Uh, and, and, to speak about Trump, yes, the last time he was president, he he uh, abrogated that ridiculous treaty that is allowing them to become a nuclear power, and and they're so very close to doing that. Uh, one would hope that he would go right back to that, you know. And then, of course, Biden reinstated it, um, and that treaty really should be abrogated permanently. Uh, but that's another, <laughs> I guess that's another whole question. But yes, you're right that Iran is key. And right now, Iran is is also making a political calculation. Uh, how much money and manpower do they want to put into this cause of eliminating Israel? Uh, they have some hard choices to make. Indeed. Well, this has certainly been a sobering discussion on that. So during this historic time, let's stay tuned on that. And by the way, one of the comments from the audience was, with so many Palestinians uh, in support of Hamas, it's doubtful that there'll be much change there. So gosh, we'll, we'll, we'll stay tuned. I did want to shift the topic a little bit to um, what is called the province of Alberta, mm -hmm. where um, the other week uh, significant legislation was introduced um, by the, the government there. And um, I think uh, Daniel Smith has certainly been on the front line uh, among other key ministers there in Alberta, um, introducing legislation arguably designed to protect minors uh, from, uh, you know, going through the process of, of changing their, um, you know, ultimately uh, taking uh, puberty blockers and, and undertaking surgery. And it also has uh, legislation, and I encourage people to look at it, um, 
the whole issue of giving guidance to sports organizations in Alberta not to accept transgendered athletes, like e.g. Uh, men who, quote, identify as a woman participating, say, in weightlifting or all kinds of other things where biological men have a, a really a, a profound advantage over women. Um, it, it, it's interesting. I, I would have thought that most parents would view this as really quite um, middle-of-the-road balanced legislation because they, they certainly have provisions to try to, you know, safeguard people that may be uh, transgendered, uh, to try to respect the parental right to work with their child. Um, so are you surprised by the reaction in some quarters or what, what's your take on how, what's the, the big shakeout on this? Well, I, I certainly support uh, Danielle Smith's initiative. I think it is balanced and fair. I think she presented, when she presented it, her video, uh, she, she couldn't have been more warm and appreciative of the sensitivities around this issue and the, the, the difficulties that people with gender dysphoria have. I don't, I don't think anybody could accuse her of malice towards uh, people who are gender confused. Certainly that, that would be a very unfair accusation. So what is she recommending? Uh, or what are the new guidelines going to be? They are actually literally going to be the guidelines that have been imposed already by several European countries and Scandinavian countries, because those countries were kind of ahead of us um, in in the research around this and in in um, affirming the reality of this of this problem and in in treatment. So they were a few years ahead. They went into it in a very big way, you know, uh, affirmation model and all, all of that, where we still are largely. But then they started doing deeper research and they've pulled back because they're finding that the research does not support early medical intervention for sure, or even affirmation of social change uh, before a child has had really more time to go through the phases that children do. So what she is what she is has implement, is implementing is totally consistent with what sober responsible governments um, in socialist countries, you know, like Denmark and Norway, uh, England now, and I think uh, is it Germany? I'm not sure. But uh, we should be listening to those countries because they've done the research. She is listening. And in a few more years, everybody's going to be saying she was right, because it is my belief uh, that it we are at a tipping point. Yes, there are very loud voices saying, no, this is transphobic. It's not, you know, and, and uh, children are going to be devastated and they'll be depressed and they'll commit suicide. By the way, there are there's absolutely no research that supports um, the assertion by trans activists that children who are denied early affirmation or early puberty blockers or any of that um, commit suicide at any greater rates than uh, children who uh, uh, suffer from depression, anxiety, or other disorders, uh, but that are not gender confused. So that that's a red herring and that's a bullying, you know, that's a bully tactic. Um, so yes, she, what she do, has done is good and strong and it's almost like, um, it's almost like, uh, this person, this, this study came out just for me knowing that I was going to be speaking with you, David, <laughs> it's called, it's an, it's an absolutely brand new study, uh, by Eric Kaufman, um, for the McDonald Laurier Institute. Uh, it's called the politics of the culture wars in contemporary Canada and basically, it's the result of polls on all kinds of different issues, including including the gender issue. And it shows that actually Canadians in their views on cultural issues are far more, they're maybe not as voluble as they are in other places. Um, and they're more respectful of elite governmental authorities. However, when you ask them their own opinion, they are very much on side with Danielle Smith, 
um, and they, um, in by margins of like two to one, agree that early intervention, like they should that we should err on the side of prudence of wait and see. Um, they do not want to see two by two to one. They do not want to see uh, biological males in women's sport. Um, you know, if you just go down the list, they are very much and and by the way, I'm pretty sure that. Um, Mr. Polyev had access to these figures <laughs> uh, before we did, because I don't think he would have come out publicly so fast, or not so fast, but I don't think he would have been with such confidence, would have come out in support of her guidelines, um, unless he had a very strong understanding that, by and large, Canadians uh, do agree with him. Exactly. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a very um, interesting uh, summary of the issue. And, and I'm, I'm really curious what our audience thinks about this as well. But, um, you know, it, to me, it, it kind of resonates. I know this is an overworked phrase, but it's kind of common sense. Like these are very significant decisions. Our heart goes out to every child who may be confused about their gender. I, I You know, that goes without saying. But why would that discussion be enabled with teachers? I don't understand that. That's really a parental decision. And these are decisions that are very important. Um, they're adult decisions. They're not for minors to make. So I don't understand. What are we missing here? Like, is it, is okay, it truly... So let me play devil's advocate for one minute and say there could be many reasons why a child was worried or upset or, or, or not, not willing to tell their parents about their gender confusion, might, might be afraid of their reaction, might, might already have advanced knowledge that th this is something that they disapprove of. I personally have no problem with a child confiding in a teacher at school as their first line of, you know, um, uh, advice seeking. However, the, the, the guidelines do not prohibit that at all. And I think people are confused about that. The guidelines do not um, deny a child the right or deny a teacher the right to have a private discussion about a child's distress with regard to anything. There's a difference, though, between confiding in a teacher and coming out publicly, or not publicly, but coming out in the school environment as a uh, having announced that they are now a different gender. That's what is, without the parents' knowledge, that is where the guidelines draw the line. They say, no, 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 no. A teacher can privately have knowledge, can privately help a student to talk, can privately, you know, even try to get the student to agree to uh, bringing the parents in on a discussion with everybody. That's fine. And I have no problem with that. And I don't think reasonable people do. Uh, so it's, I think the people are confused uh, and they're putting, they're conflating the two, uh, confiding in a teacher uh, and coming out under the teacher's guidance uh, in front of the class, in front of the school. That's, that's a very different thing. Okay. That, that's, that's very helpful and, and makes a lot of sense to me. So Barbara, when we look at um, the next steps around the adoption of the legislation, I realize that further consultations are going to be occurring. Um, so, you know, that process is going down the track and, and I think you're right, uh, most sensible, um, in my opinion, uh, parents, um, would, would say, wow, this, this legislation makes a lot of sense. It's balanced and, uh, it will really empower parents to be parents and respect and protect minors. But in this context, um, it also seems like the, the, the federal government wants to identify it really as a kind of a battleground for mm -hmm. kind of a wedge issue, if you call it cynically, um, a, a political wedge issue um, that will be used to kind of distinguish itself um, for its supporters um, opposed to the legislation. Um, I think one of the ministers of the federal government even called it a so-called NATO moment, uh, referring to the, the North American treaty organization, that somehow this was a call to mobilize um, all compassionate, um, uh, right-thinking people against this legislation. Do you think that's kind of a dead end then, given the kind of survey 
that you've just outlined where most Canadians are at. Most Canadians are not on board with a kind of a radical situation where we kind of enable kids to change their gender. Yes, I agree with you. I, I think it's a desperation move because uh, on so many issues, they're being, um, uh, they're not making headway. Uh, you know, the housing, immigration, like Polyev has been seeming to own a lot of the major issues that that Canadians really do care about. And I, I see it as a desperation uh, move because I think Trudeau and his government have always played to the activists. I think they've mistaken the activists, what the activists want uh, as um, this is them being compassionate, you know, compassionate government, compassion, compassion. Uh, and it's all about uh, people who are disadvantaged. It's, you know, it, it's, it's oppressed groups. And they've made that such a hallmark of their government. They can't back down on it. They have, there's only one way to go for them is to double down. Because if they were to admit that they were too, I mean, you know, it was Trudeau himself who announced out of the blue, uh, without even consulting his ministers a few years ago when he said, oh yes, uh, men who identify as women, yes, they should they should be allowed to go into women's prisons uh, uh, because, you know, they shouldn't. I mean, he, he didn't even think it out. So he he's made this his issue in a very unthinking kind of way. I am very convinced he has not personally seen any of the actual research uh, in, in the National Post last week was uh, was a uh, an op-ed by uh, uh, an endocrinologist at uh, Montreal Hospital, Dr. Roy Epen, and it was such a measured, you know, to sh that that laid out all the possible harms that can be done from early puberty blockers, laid out the statistics uh, that if you leave a child alone, you don't give them puberty blockers, the odds are about eighty percent that you're dealing with a child who is gay, who thinks, who's who's been sort of groomed to think that if, if they feel, if they have feelings that seem to be stereotypical of the opposite sex, then that must mean that they want to be there or they are meant to be. Um, so we know from innumerable studies that uh, if you leave a, let a child go through puberty, uh, the odds are about 80% that they will feel comfortable in the sex they were born. They may have a different sexuality than their parents thought, you know, or wanted, but um, that's uh, no reason not to let them kind of live their life before they, I mean, puberty blockers, they present a child with life altering um, uh, changes to their bodies, including uh, potential infertility. And 99% of children that take puberty blockers go on to cross sex hormones, which are far more likely to cause infertility. So the changes in a child's uh, physical body are so immense and some, and also mental. We're finding out all the time more and more about the effects of puberty blockers on, on children. Um, they're not harmless. Uh, actually, Dr. Epen is uh, one of the principals in a group called uh, first do no harm, you know, um, and these are doctors who, uh, are pressing for more prudence and for more responsibility and less ideology in this entire field. Uh, and, uh, that's who our prime minister should be listening to, not the loudest voices from ideologues or from very, um, uh, aggressive uh, trans people themselves who, for whom this battle is, is uh, existential. Uh, they are not objective people. I think that makes a lot of um, sense. Uh, it, it, it sounds like you're calling for wisdom when you use words such as prudence. Um, and, and I think this is so apropos, Barbara, to our conversation as we think about how to make wise public policy decisions uh, based on evidence and science and healthy debate and discussion. 
And I think caring leaders do that. And I think this is begs the question, if you're not kind of anchoring those decisions on truth or evidence, then um, it begs the question, why are we doing this? And, and it's occurred to me that one of the things that's happening or could be happening is this is often it's been said, this is kind of a social contagion. It's kind of a, a fashionable thing to do. If you're kind of with it, then maybe you're open to kind of changing your gender. I, I don't know. I don't pretend to, to kind of know what is in people's heads. But I, I do wonder if that is a possibility, Barbara, that some of this is kind of a, a social contagion. I, I think what they mean by that is a kind of a, a trend within society. And too many politicians maybe go ahead with that as they try to be seen as caring, when in fact, mm -hmm. are you caring if what you're saying is not based on the truth, Barbara? No, I, I, I think it is a social contagion. Those words have been applied uh, to the gender issue uh, for some time now. Um, in her excellent book, uh, Irreversible Damage, a few years ago, which, by the way, got banned. Uh, for, I mean, it became a co-celebre amongst, they hated it. And it was about, uh, about the fact that, uh, especially amongst young girls in the, who had reached puberty and who had never showed signs of gender confusion before, and suddenly they were, you know, en masse uh, discovering that they really were meant to be um, and she goes through the whole process of how they were groomed in their minds by uh, activism at school and, and, and gender ideologues for whom um, fluidity of gender is part of, of, of a whole transfer. It's a revolutionary approach to society as, as a whole to break down norms, to break down norms. And one of the biggest norms that they feel has to be broken down uh, is the idea that there's such a thing as two sexes <laughs> and that gender fluidity is a norm. So, so when children learn this in school, um, they're very, they're very, their minds are very vulnerable. They, especially since it's repeated on TikTok, TikTok. One of, one of the examples that she gave that I, that stays with me from that book was she said uh, it in, in, um, in terms of, how kind of tenaciously children who glom on to this idea, uh, and many of them, by the way, are autistic. We know that from many, many different studies. So once they glom on to this idea, it's very hard to shake their faith in that idea. And she showed that it, it, the same kind of children who um, are on board for gender confusion are also on board for anorexia, especially, I mean, girls especially. And you don't hear as much about anorexia as you once did, but I, in the 1990s, for example, uh, anorexia was a social contagion. And there was no question that girls amongst themselves, it became a kind of thing. You'd see, you know, girls, friendship, friendship groups, they all got into this, anorexia thing. But the most important thing that came out of her discussion about that was she said, once this got onto social, once you got into the social media aspect, um, and in the 1990s, there weren't social media, but once it did, anorexia suddenly started appearing in places where it had never appeared before. She talked particularly about um, a whole uh, like a viral kind of infection in Japan, of all places, where actually uh, the average child is quite small and petite. Um, so you suddenly had girls in Japan who had never experienced anything like this, suddenly turning anorexic and going the whole, you know, nine yards with it. And that to me w was one of the strongest pieces of evidence um, that I could see that if, you know, you use the word fashion, but fashion almost seems like uh, something frivolous, like, oh yeah, you know, um, um, a certain kind of shoes or, or girls are all wearing like bows in their hair or something like that. That's fashion. But this is something much more insidious, of course, because um, it, it is, uh, it's invasive. It's, it's a kind of, uh, invasion of your, 
of your mind um, and the taking over of your mind. Uh, So I find it uh, a much more pernicious thing. And 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 for adults to encourage children to um uh when they first hear about you know what i'm i'm too fat but darling you're perfectly normal we nobody ever says to a, a, a thin child who's refusing food nobody ever says yes dear i can see yes 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 you're you're too fat they don't they don't affirm uh, a child who is you know, harming their body um, because we accept that anorexia is a disorder. Uh, And in terms of gender dysphoria, there are truly gender dysphoric children that cannot be denied and they really can only be, it is a disorder, but they, they can only be made comfortable by transition. Let them do it when they're older. And if, if that's what they truly want, we can't stand in their way. And we shouldn't. Um, and it might be just as much heartache for a parent of an 18-year-old. Uh, but at least they'll have the comfort of knowing that that child is now able to read books and to read, you know, to uh, to make that decision somewhat on their own. Uh, but you cannot expect a seven, eight, nine-year-old child it's not fair. It's not fair to assign them that level of, of responsibility and uh, ability, the competency, mental competency, sufficient to medicalize them. Uh, and, and once you start medicalization, we know it's usually for life. This, this to me is going to end up being one of the great scandals of human history. And I think Danielle Smith is going to hopefully live long enough to be able to say, well, at least I didn't succumb to it and I did something about it and good for her. Indeed, good for her. So it begs the question uh, then, parents really need to look at this issue with great sensitivity and insight and truth. Uh, I think your overview is, is so helpful. It's something that you rarely hear in the mainstream media. And I think you you really shine a, a really a, a wise light on this issue. So I think parents really need to speak up. It's interesting, there's a comment from our audience that said, um, our education system really needs an overhaul. It really needs to focus on the ABCs or educational performance. That's really why they're there. So I think, you know, I think paradoxically, I mean, I think that there's the typical coalition of groups that are vehemently opposed to this legislation, as I understand, including the um, education union. So I think there's perhaps a great risk that they're kind of out on a branch, if you will, not really in touch with the community or the science for that matter. So, it, it, it you know, I'm wondering if there's a possibility that um, this will do a lot of of damage to the trust that parents have in the public education system. And my gosh, Barbara, I don't know, maybe we need to, I know at Frontier we've written extensively about the benefits of vouchers um, that are used in countries like Sweden. So you empower parents to make the choice where you can send your children. Uh, But I think this really begs a lot of questions regarding the trust in the public education system. Well, there shouldn't be trust in the public education system because the uh, this ideology uh, has penetrated every single educational institution, every the teachers' unions, the school boards. Uh, there is no institutional group that has not been penetrated by uh, activism ide- ideology. It's it's a uh, um, across the board. I so agree with you about vouchers. And one thing Alberta has that I wish all of Canada had was uh, charter schools that have the right to spring up with very little um, red tape to go through. Uh, And that's what we, and absolutely what we need all across Canada is uh, charter schools that are not beholden to uh, curricula that are designed by a pedagogical system that is from 
top down from the from the schools that teach teachers, the educational schools that they are uh, marinated in Marxist para, uh, pedagogy. They all read this book by Paulo Freire. Um, what's the name of the book? Anyways, it's uh, it's it's the book. Uh, he was a revolutionary Marxist uh, who believed in total liber you know revolution in the schools, total liber liberation of students. He treated them like like as if they were you know revolutionaries in the hills, like you know fighting about. I mean, uh, he wanted to totally upend all the schools and uh, give the children free reign in every direction. Listen, I, I, you know, honestly, parents have to trust their instincts. They have to, there's power in numbers, there's power in organization. They, they have to take back it. Schools are meant to be serving families. They are not meant to be serving ideological delusions and fantasies and the wish uh, to virtue signal and to, you know, to, to usher in uh, a, a utopian world based on Marxist principles. That is not what uh, we signed up for originally when we decided that we would have public education, was it? So <laughs> we have to return. If public education is not going to go back to first principles, then, then parents have to have the right to choose other uh, avenues to educate their children. Totally agree, uh, Barbara. I think that's really well said. You know, it, it reminds me of another analysis that just came out. Um, I think it was last week from StatsCan of all, all organizations regarding trust in mm -hmm. Canadian societies, both institutions and the media. And I did want to reflect briefly on the media because I think there's a dynamic going on here where a lot of what you talked about earlier, as I said, is um, I think very wise insights regarding the evidence and, and how do you really safeguard if you care about the wealth, the, the health and pardon me, the, the health and welfare of uh, children. But this study from Stats Canada was interesting because it showed a, a significant I was somewhat surprised how low the level of trust is by Canadians in the mainstream media. Mm -hmm. um, and, and just to summarize it quickly, you had 21% uh, uh, of Quebecers really had a, a fairly uh, good confidence or trust in the media. Mm -hmm. And then in the West, on the prairies, it was 12%. Ontario was some uh, 13% in Ontario and BC. And Atlantic Canada came in at 15%. So you know, when you look at some of these issues, I mean, it's amazing how little substance a lot of the mainstream media really conveys in what I believe is a balanced fashion regarding the arguments. Like you never hear the mainstream media talking about how a lot of this is just all based on bizarre, on the transgendered issue, out of bizarre Mark, cultural Marxist theories of, of queer theory. That's a specific yeah. theory that they use out of the universities. Like this is right out of the bowels of the university, juxtaposed to the kind of the summary that you've mentioned that really comes out of evidence and research out of European jurisdictions that are really trying to come together and, and in a way that empowers parents, safeguards children, but also in a sensitive matter, tries to realize that some people are confused about their gender. And they need support too. So, mm -hmm. in this context, are you surprised how low those trust numbers are in the mainstream media? I actually think uh, it's it's a, in in a way a sign of it is low. I, I do find these figures very low, but in a way, it's a healthy sign because so much of the media is um, untrustworthy uh, in terms of objectivity. Uh, most, I mean, I, I have to always use the CBC as the prime example. Uh, CBC's mission has become uh, to be a vehicle for unabashedly uh, politicized thinking and uh, wishes. They are, they are in the vanguard of advancing uh, progressive ideas and they 
they the, the people that work for them are uniformly of the same opinion. So it's kind of like a closed shop uh, for left-wing thinking um, and with very little uh, giving the other side an opportunity as a public broadcaster. I mean, for example, the BBC is itself filled to the brim with left-wing thinkers, but their mandate uh, from the government is that they are obliged to give uh, airspace, airtime to the opposite, you know, to if there's if there's a debate going on and, you know, about whatever issue, they are obliged to give a certain amount of time to the opposite side. But the CBC does not, I don't know what their mandate says, but they certainly uh, very rarely give airtime or writing uh, time to, and even their own journalists have petitioned to be more, uh, for example, on the, uh, the Middle Eastern file, they've had their own journalists have signed petitions with hundreds and hundreds of them demanding that they be allowed to be biased in their reporting, that it's their right to be biased. <laughs> so uh, that doesn't bode well for, you know, the public broadcaster and, you know, a lot of the other media uh, equally. I think, I think a lot of people now, look, they do have an option. Um, they can, they can go online. They can choose any one of, uh, literally hundreds of thousands of podcasts and look look at us you know here we are having this conversation uh it's it's not we're not doing it for a public a broadcaster or for any broadcaster it's you know your uh, the frontier center wants to have interesting conversations that are not censored or uh great you can do it um and so so do individuals i read and support a lot of Substacks, for example, and um, I get a lot of my news uh, from online, um, you know, either uh, rep reportage or commentary, especially commentary uh, from online magazines and and individual Substack writers that I respect, uh, and it's 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 really enhancing, uh, intellectually enriching. So. I would be one of those people that say I don't trust most media. I, I can't say I don't trust all because there are certain, you know, I, I the publications that I work for, I trust. <laughs> um, I read the Wall Street Journal every day. I trust the Wall Street Journal. I love their um, commentators and I, I trust their news. Uh, so I guess, I guess we're in flux right now media wise because, uh, um, you know, things are really still shaking out from um, the huge falling off the cliff of media following uh, the, the day when the internet ruined their ad revenues. Um, and uh, we're still in recovery mode, I think. But things are, things are starting to look a little more crystal clear, a little, a little clearer than they were, I mean, 10 or 15 years ago. We were in, you know, media was in free fall, wasn't it? Hmm. Well, Barbara, um, I, I think that's a, a, a very good insight into the state of the media. And we need to pay attention to these surveys uh, in this state of flux, as you said. But it also, um, I can tell you, there's, there's still uh, some very capable people uh, in the media. And mm -hmm. certainly I enjoy reading your columns regularly, both in the Epoch Times, which is a, a terrific uh, newspaper, if, if you are not familiar with it, as well as the National Post has a lot of um, great insights and other media, including um, on this network uh, with the, the Miracle Network or MCA Media. So it's been delightful to have this far-reaching conversation with you, Barbara, and I really do appreciate you sharing your both your wisdom and uh, your insights uh, on these topics. Thank you, David. I, I really appreciate the, 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 the leisure we've had to uh, explore these topics. It's, it's not often you get more than a two-minute soundbite, or, uh, and this is a real, um, it's a real treat. It's a privilege and uh, uh, a luxury, <laughs> I have to say. Um, in terms of sharing views and, and ideas. So I thank you. 
Well, thank you, Barbara, and thank you to our audience. We really appreciated the insightful questions and comments that you shared with us. And be sure to join us every Thursday for our live discussion. And I will tell you that, uh, we there, again, the audience feedback has been tremendous, and we're really grateful for that. And uh, it's interesting, tomorrow we're going to have a, another live discussion. It's a little bit of a special one as we mark the anniversary of the invocation, the use of the Emergency Measures Act, and we'll be having a conversation with senior fellow from Frontier, uh, Ray McGinnis, who has uh, researched this issue extensively. Um, it's fascinating that uh, we had the court decision the other week uh, naming the use of the act as unconstitutional. And we also want to talk about the Coots Four, uh, the four gentlemen who served some 720 days without bail uh, in confinement. So we'll, we'll catch up on that story as well, among others. So please be sure to join us tomorrow at uh, 2 o'clock Central Time, uh, 12 o'clock Pacific. And in the meantime, be sure to like us and uh, share this uh, with others. And we're so glad that you could join us today on Live with Barbara Kay and uh, have a terrific day. Thank you.